me encourage you to remain standing and turn to our sermon passage for this morning, just a page or so back in your Bibles, in Hebrews chapter 10, where we will be reading verses 19 through 39 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, that is page 1194, it's just a few pages back. Again, continuing in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, and reading through the end of the chapter. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of our God. Please be seated. And let's seek the Lord's illumination on his word. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for breathing it out. We thank you for preserving it. We thank you for having it translated so that we can hear the word of our creator in the language of our hearts. We thank you that we are able week after week to stand at attention out of respect for you who speak to us in scripture every time it is read. We pray now that as we sit, that that attention would not waver but would be rather intensified by the illuminating and indwelling power of your Holy Spirit. 
And we pray that as your spirit speaks to us in scripture, that we would be transformed through faith. We ask our God that you would simply do for us as Jesus promised and prayed when he asked you, our Father, to sanctify them, his church, in the truth. Your word is truth. And so sanctify us, make us holier, make us new people through the consideration of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the title of this morning's sermon is The Consequences of Believing. There are people, perhaps you've known some of them, there are people for whom ideas have consequences. Have you ever known somebody like that? Somebody who, as their ideas change or their way of thinking about something change, they actually change their lives. There are lots of people in the world who hear something new and they think about it and they say, oh yeah, maybe. But my show's on, you know, but I got a text and they go on and nothing changes. But there are those for whom ideas have consequences. A couple famous examples from church history, not the only examples, of course. William Carey, some of you know that name, William Carey, that called the father of modern missions. William Carey was a shoemaker. He was not college educated. He did not get to go to seminary. He was a shoemaker who had an interest in the Bible and in missions, and he hung up a map of the world over his shoemaking bench so as he was working, he could think and pray about the needs of the nations for Jesus Christ. And over time, as he read and studied in his off hours, he eventually put together his thoughts and he published a book with an extraordinarily long title. It's called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Not only is that an incredibly long title, but it was an incredibly consequential book. As a result of that book, the first uh, English-speaking missionary society was formed in England, the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792. And in the next year, 1793, guess who went to India on behalf of the Baptist Missionary Society? The cobbler, William Carey. He was a man for whom the idea had a consequence. Another famous example, many of you have heard of this because they made a movie about him. They should make a movie about William Carey. They haven't. But they did make a movie about Eric Liddell. And in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, Eric Liddell, who was favored to win the 100-meter race, refused to run in the heats to qualify for that race because of his convictions about the Lord's Day being the Sabbath. And he would not run for an Olympic gold on the Sabbath day. For him, the idea had a consequence. There's a question for us this morning as we come to this text, but also just as you start to think through in these categories is, what ideas have had consequences in your lives? Can you think of examples? Can you think of a time in your life where the way you changed, the way you thought about something actually brought about a change in the way you live? What ideas have had consequences. One of the things that the writer to the Hebrews has been doing throughout the letter, but especially really from like the end of chapter 4 all the way up to the end of chapter 10, he has been magnifying the goodness of Jesus Christ. And he kind of recaps it for us. Kind of, there's, in verses 19 through 21, there's sort of a recap of everything he's been saying for the past several chapters. We have confidence to enter the holy places by, by, by the blood of Jesus 
through the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through his flesh, we have a great high priest over the house of God. These are all the sorts of things he's been saying to us over the past many chapters. But he has a hope in saying these things. His hope is not just to wow his readers. He doesn't just want them to think, dude, that guy understands the Old Testament. Wow, look at all these strands that he's drawing together. I mean, that's cool enough. But he's actually hoping that this will change the way they live. He is hoping that these ideas will have consequences in the lives of his readers. He wants them to see these things about Christ. He wants them to believe these things. And then he wants those things to change the way they think and speak and live, not just on Sundays when they're gathering for worship, but Monday through Saturday in the daily life, in the daily grind, in the domestic scene, in the vocational scene, at school, at work, online, and social media. What we believe should have consequences for how we live. It's not just the writer to the Hebrews that has this hope for his readers. This is the hope of your pastors. This is the hope of your elders here at Covenant. We are very hopeful, and we pray that weekly gospel exposure will actually change your lives that things will actually change as a result of the things we're teaching you to believe. And friends, it is a persistent pastoral concern among us. Does our ministry bear any actual fruit? What's happening? Are, we, are, are, are things actually changing? And this passage of Hebrews, this will be the last sermon in Hebrews that I have the privilege to, to share with you. At some point in the future, Pastor Patton will come back and finish the book. But this passage, and this is not going to be my last sermon at Covenant. I don't want to mislead you. It's just we're we're tying off the book of Hebrews here because it's a good juncture, okay? Um, Some of you will be relieved. Some of you will be like, man, (laughs) I'm teasing. In this last passage of Hebrews that we're going to deal with together, in verses 19 through 39 of chapter 10, what the writer is doing is he is saying all of the stuff that we've been studying has some very definite consequences. And he wants to draw our attention to three big categories of consequence. And so that's what we're going to look at here this morning, because if you've got your outlines, you can see the three major categories there. If we believe the things that the writer has been saying and that we have been studying over these weeks together, it should change the way we live in three distinct ways. And the first of these is that it should draw us, impel us, push us to pursue God. All of what he was saying there in verses 19 through 21, if you believe that the work of Jesus has actually opened a door to heaven, a door through which any human being who trusts him can enter into eternal joy, what should be the consequence is you should run toward God in Christ. How do we do that? How do we pursue God? This is number one on your outlines, and it's right here in the text before us. Number one, the primary way we pursue God is through worship. Through worship. Look at verse 22. Having said all those things in verses 19 through 21, what is the first, um, what is the first exhortation? He says, let us draw near. What does that word mean, draw near? Literally, the word is come to. And so we should be asking, what are we coming to? We are coming to what? Well, when this word is used elsewhere in Hebrews, it always pushes us toward the idea of worship. Chapter 4, same word was used to say, let us draw near to the throne of grace. 
chapter 7 and in chapter 11, talks about those who come to God or draw near to God through Jesus. And in chapter 12, probably some of you were wondering, why did he read from chapter 12? We haven't gotten that far. But in chapter 12, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Same word, drawing near to God to do what? To worship. Did you know, friends, it's so easy to forget this, do you realize that worship is why God saves us? It is the purpose and the goal of all of your salvation is for God to bring you to worship Him. What does the catechism say? To glorify and to enjoy. And it's not just in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, when God sent Moses to Pharaoh to command him to let my people go, he always added a reason that they may serve me, that they may offer a sacrifice to me. So from the Old Testament to the New, the purpose of salvation is to draw us to worship. We glorify what we enjoy. And so when the catechism says to glorify and enjoy God, it is calling us to to worship the God we are to enjoy, to pursue God in love and to enter into that worship. Don't we all glorify the things we enjoy? You might think, I don't usually use the word glorify in my daily life, but we all love to talk about and praise the things we enjoy. Some of you, I know at least one member of my family, is a cat person. Loves to talk about cats. Nothing wrong with that. Talk about how cool they are, how fluffy they are, how sweet they are. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-uh, it's true. If you love cats, you glorify cats. If you love sports, you talk about sports. And I know that in a couple weeks, there's going to be a lot of people in this congregation glorifying Ohio State and the Cincinnati Bengals because you enjoy them. You may not use that word, but that's what you'll do. You'll talk them up. You'll talk about how good they are. If you're into art, if you're into farming, if you're into politics, if you're into stories, we all glorify the things we enjoy. Why do we do that? Because the glorifying actually magnifies the pleasure. You realize that? Isn't it when you you find something that you really delight in, don't you just want to tell somebody about it? And when you share it and when you tell somebody about it, it actually increases your joy, especially if you see their eyes light up. Well, friends... God wants us to pursue Him with joy. He wants us to draw near to Him, as the rest of verse 22 says, with a true heart, or a sincere heart is another way of translating that. He wants us to draw near in full assurance or complete certainty of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And yet God knows that we cannot do this alone. We cannot keep this joy Alone, And so the second thing that is involved in the pursuit of God, number two on your outlines, is even when it involves risk, we must pursue God together. Must pursue God together as a body. If you go back, and you can do this for yourself or you can just listen because I'm going to give you the statistics. If you go back through just verses 19 through 25, And count up the number of times he uses plural language. We, us, are, together, one another. In just those seven verses, he uses this pluralizing language 12 times. And even with this reference to our bodies washed with pure water, almost certainly a reference to baptism, which normally in church history has been celebrated as part of public worship. It is a public celebration. 
And if you go on in verses 26 through 36, every time, you can't see this in the English, but you can see it in the Greek, every time he uses the word you, that's a plural you. You could even translate it ye, or if you're from uh, this part of the world, you could even translate it all y'all. The point is that Christianity and the pursuit of God is an inescapably corporate activity. And we need to hear that because in our society there are alternative views out there. They're, they're, it's very popular because of our history, because of our culture. We have a highly individualistic strain in our, we're all raised with it, are we not? And so it's very easy for us to fall into this idea, well, just me and Jesus, that's all that's really important. Well, my friends, that idea, just me and Jesus, that may have been born in the USA, but it is not born in the New Testament. It is not a biblical idea. Yes, you need a personal relationship with Jesus, but a personal relationship with Jesus always becomes a corporate relationship with the body of Christ. As the writer to Hebrews says here in verse 25, we are not to neglect the meeting together, even when it means great risk. And he's writing these things not to comfortable Westerners for whom going to church has no, no risk at all. But look at what he says in verses 32 through 34. He is talking to them about the risk they run when they join together. When they gather together as a body, they run the risk of being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. 33. Verse 34. Being cast into prison, having their property plundered. There was real risk for the recipients of this, of this letter to gather together, to be the body of Christ. And this is still an ongoing risk for many believers in the world today. When we lived overseas and we worshipped with a part of the body of, the, of Christ that was under that sort of pressure, there were times when literally we, we gathered for worship in the basement of an apartment because it was risky, but we didn't stop gathering. There were times when our family had to divide up into smaller groups because we're so big. There were seven of us. You couldn't exactly take a trail of, of seven, seven American faces in this particular part of the world into one, one door at the same time. It drew attention, so we split up and went in, in phases and groups. And the other believers that were gathering had to do the same thing. They had to come in ones and twos and, and different times because there was a risk, but they didn't stop meeting it's a consequence of believing the gospel and what Jesus says through the Apostle Paul that we are the body of Christ. The body must hold together or it will die. And so even when it involves risk, we, the body of Christ, must pursue God together. That's the second point. Now, as soon as I say that, I know some of you are thinking of people you know who have been hurt by the church. It's true, and it's hard. But if you are ever, if, that, if such a person is ever going to feel the healing arms of Christ come around them, where will they find the arms of Christ except connected to the body of Christ? Where else are Jesus' arms? Where else are Jesus' feet? Connected to His body. And so, even when we are hurt by the church, we cannot give up on pursuing God together. There is no healing from Christ apart from His body. And even when it's painful, this is the third point, because it can be. And if you've ever been hurt by the church or you know those who have, you know this is true. Even when it is painful, such gathering, such public pursuit of God together, it gives us essential 
encouragement. Notice what the, notice what the writer says here in verse 25. He doesn't stop by saying, not neglecting to meet together. He says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And that word but there in the original language is even more emphatic. It's, it's more like not neglecting to meet together, but rather encouraging one another. In other words, what he's saying, by making that contrast, he is saying that to neglect to meet together would discourage. But when we gather together and pursue God together, we are encouraging. In fact, the act of gathering produces encouragement. And notice what he says. It's about encouraging not just our own hearts, but encouraging one another. In other words, what the writer is getting at here is something that you'll learn more and more of the longer you're in the the Christian community and the longer you go in Christ, and that is simply the power of presence. The power of the presence of other Christians. Yeah, You read these words, like in verse 23, let's hold fast the confession of our of our hope without wavering. And you ask yourself, how can I do that when I'm struggling? I'm supposed to hold fast the confession of my faith without wavering, but what about when I'm struggling? How am I supposed to remember that He who promised is faithful when I'm besieged with doubt? How will I be stirred up to love and good works when I'm struggling so much? And the answer is that you see it in the eyes of other believers when you gather. As you gather to worship, maybe some of you came in today feeling like this. Maybe you're on the edge spiritually and nobody knows it but you and the Lord. And you're coming in and you're wondering, is this really real? And you're struggling to believe it, but then when the church stands and the church sings and you hear other voices praying and singing and trusting in Jesus, you see it in their eyes when you can't see it in your own heart that yes, this is real. He is still faithful. It's all still true. And so you find that encouragement in the eyes of other believers. You hear it in all y'all's singing. You get it even in those awkward side hugs that people do at church. The real presence of the body of Christ brings real encouragement. If we believe that Jesus has opened a door to eternal joy, then one of the first consequences of believing that the writer is pointing us to is that we are to pursue God together. I've never read this book, but years ago there was a book that I really loved the title. I don't even remember who wrote it. It was called The Pursuit of God in the Company of Friends. That's really what the writer is talking about here. We are to pursue the Lord together. There's another consequence, though, that comes in the very next paragraph. And that second consequence is if we believe in the gospel and we believe that we are to pursue God together, and if we believe that life is fundamentally about the pursuit of God, then we ought to also feel a revulsion, a horror, at anything that interferes or is opposed to that pursuit. And that means we ought to have a horror of sin. Look at what he says in verse 26. If we go on deliberately sinning, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does he mean by sinning deliberately? We need to unpack this here so that we understand it clearly. No sin is trivial. No sin is trivial. All sin is bad. And yet there are different types of sin. There is that sin that you commit really without thinking, sort of in the madness of the moment. That's bad. That's a sin. You need to be forgiven of that. That sin could send you to hell. 
if it's not covered by the blood of Jesus. But there is that, that unintentional sin. That's what the Scripture calls an unintentional sin. And then there is what this passage is referring to here, the deliberate sin, the cold-blooded sin, if you will, what the, the Old Testament calls a sin of the high hand because you're thumbing your nose at the heavens. You're, you're, you're shaking your fist at God. This, this deliberate sin of which the writer is speaking here is whenever you know something is wrong, and you're not caught in the throes of the passions of the flesh. You are, you are cold-blooded, as it were. You know it's wrong. You know you shouldn't. You know it is opposed to what God says. And you say, in essence, I will do it anyway because I want to. That cold-blooded, high-handed sin, that deliberate sin, is very, very dangerous. Look at how verse 29 describes it. This, 29 is just describing what, what, what are the implications, what are the consequences of such a deliberate sin. It says, one who, one who goes on sinning deliberately has trampled underfoot the Son of God. That verb there, trampled underfoot, is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 7 when he talks about pigs trampling pearls. It's the idea of, of trampling Christ underfoot the way a pig would, would trample a pearl that was cast before it. Profane the blood of the covenant, the next part of that verse. The idea of treating the cleansing power of Christ as though it were unclean. Outraged the spirit of grace. And notice the escalation in language here. We're told elsewhere in the, in the New Testament that all sin grieves the Holy Spirit. But deliberate sin outrages our God. Why? Because number four on your outlines, kids, some of you thought I forgot. I didn't. Number four, to sin deliberately is to treat Jesus and his blood like mud. If you're trampling him underfoot, if you are deliberately sinning, when you know you shouldn't, when you are a cold-blooded sinner, as it were, engaging in a persistent pattern of sin, not taking the necessary steps to put it to death, continually falling into the same trap that you know you ought not to, but refusing to take any steps to prevent falling in because you love the sin more than you love the Savior, when you are sinning in cold blood, that is like treating Jesus and His blood like mud. And this especially refers to the great concern of the writer to Hebrews, that people would turn away from the body of Christ. You can see this here. Look in verse 26. That first word, for connects what he's saying in this paragraph to what he had just got done saying. They're, they're, they were in danger of neglecting the body of Christ, and he says, neglecting the body of Christ, leaving the body of Christ, is the first step toward leaving Christ himself. You leave the body, you're on the way from leaving the head. So he's especially concerned with those who might neglect the public togetherness of pursuing God. But it is not limited. It is not limited only to that. There are other applications Deliberate sin. Deliberate sin. If you are a person who has heard the gospel for years, you have a clear understanding of what it requires, and yet you refuse to believe because it will impinge on your lifestyle. That is deliberately sinning. That is trampling the Son of God underfoot. Very dangerous place to be. And I've already said this, but if you are, if you are engaged in any sort of cold-blooded sin pattern, you know What's going on? You know what will happen if you continue living X in a certain way. You continue doing this. You continue putting yourself in this path of temptation, and you know it's going to happen. 
And there's been tons of evidence. Maybe you even have people around you that are trying to help you out, and you just keep doing it because you just keep wanting to. That deliberate pattern, that's cold-blooded sin, and it's very, very dangerous. What will happen if it continues to be the pattern of your life? What will happen, as the writer says, if you go on sinning in this way? He tells us there will no longer remain a sacrifice for sin. Why? Simple, simple logic. If you pursue sin, you are running away from the cross. If you are running away from the cross, you are running away from life. And if you run away from life, you are running toward death. You are running toward judgment. It's exactly what he says in verses 27 through 30. If you turn away from the cross, you have nothing to expect but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And make note, make special note, please, of that word adversaries. Those who join themselves with deliberate sin, those who go on in deliberate patterns of sin, if you are a deliberate, continuous, cold-blooded person engaging in sin, you are aligning yourself, you are joining yourself to the adversaries of God. And let me tell you, there's a particular name in the Bible, that, the meaning of which is adversary. And the name is Satan. And so, number five, kids, on your outlines. To go on sinning deliberately, yes, is like kissing Satan. It is like kissing Satan. Deliberate sin is not just like, it's like kissing a cadaver, kissing a dead body, but it's worse than that. It is like kissing Satan because you are running into his arms. That's how bad cold-blooded sin is. You can see this when you think about the penalty that Jesus paid for it. If Jesus had to be cursed to pay for your sin, what do you think will happen to those who play with sin? If Jesus had to be cursed to pay the penalty of sin, what will fall upon those who play with sin? And this is where verse 31 brings us around at the very end of this paragraph, bringing us into some final truth that we all need to reckon with today. Because I know that there are those here today who need to take these words to heart. Number six, all souls will finally fall into God's hands for rest or for wrath. Verse 31, one of, the, one of those most haunting verses in Scripture. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's sort of the flip side of, of my favorite verse in Scripture. My favorite verse in Scripture, Psalm 31, 5, into your hands I commit my spirit prayer of faith. But here is the great warning. If you don't put your heart into the hands of Jesus in faith, you will still fall into his hands for wrath. There are only two choices in eternity. You, you, will, you will fall into God's hands one way or the other. The choice is whether you will fall into his hands for rest or for wrath. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's an old hymn that says, Ye who think of sin but lightly. Those of us who take sin as though it were no big deal. Some of you, perhaps, who are engaging in patterns of cold-blooded sin or cold-blooded refusal to believe the gospel. Week after week, month after month, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But this is what and this is where you're headed if you treat Christ like mud 
if you kiss the devil with cold-blooded sin, there is nothing to expect but everlasting wrath. Is that horrifying? It should be. Perhaps you're sitting there going, Pastor, I am a little terrified, honestly. Sin is really strong and I'm really weak. But aren't you supposed to bring us good news? There's always good news. But the good news won't feel as good until you take the bad news seriously. But if you are taking the bad news seriously, there is good news. There is good news. The third consequence of believing what we've been reading about in Hebrews is that the Lord will help us to endure in faith. The good news is this. Jesus delights to pour his power into weakness. When we cling to him, horrified at sin and at its prospects to destroy us, but drawing near to him, coming with the body, clinging to Christ's promises, there is good news that he will pour his power into our weakness. And the writer points the recipients of Hebrews to that own reality in their own experience. Look again at verses 32 and 33. He says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. He says, Now remember, remember what happened, remember how much you suffered. Verses 32 and 33, he says, But then remember what the Holy Spirit did for you, in you, and through you while you were suffering. Look at verse 34. Though they were suffering so much, he says, the Spirit worked in you compassion on those in prison. Though they were suffering so much, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Though you were suffering so much, you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. In the midst of all that hardship, the good news was as they trusted God through it all, as they refused to walk away from the body and continued to pursue Him together, sin did not win, but the Spirit poured in them the power of Christ and what the enemy meant for good to scatter the flock, God used to magnify His presence among them. As Jesus says to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my power is made perfect in weakness. And the good news continues to build through the crescendo of this chapter. Number eight, because Jesus holds the future, the the good news is that worship will finally vanquish all sin. You see this threaded throughout this passage. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Salvation is nearer to us today than it was last Sunday. No matter how hard your week was, do you believe that? God says it's true. Verse 34, he says, remember, you had a better possession and an abiding one. This is what Elder Gieslin was reading from Hebrews chapter 12. When we come to God and worship, we are remembering that we have a new city. We have a better city. We have a better country. You are already in Christ. If you are a believer, you are already citizens of the city of the living God, of the community of the resurrection. And every time you draw near to him together, you are experiencing a foretaste of that. He says you have need of endurance, verse 36, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Again, just a reminder to remind yourself what God has promised. John chapter 10, verse 10, not just life, 
but abundant life, a better life, life to the full. And then he quotes from Habakkuk in verses 37 through 38, this Old Testament prophet, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You understand the context of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was writing at a time whenever God through Habakkuk was warning that Judah was going to receive judgment. God was bringing the Babylonians, and they were going to cause all kinds of havoc, all kinds of suffering. God was bringing the Babylonians to judge his people. And Habakkuk complains and says, but they're even worse than we are. Things are going to get even worse, God, than they already are. And the Lord's response to him is, yes, but if you trust me, if you endure through faith, you will live. And the same call is to us. We must trust the uncertain future to our certain God. Because we know Jesus holds the future, we know that worship, that glory and enjoyment of God will someday vanquish all sin. See, sin is such a liar, and it's such a pathological liar, and it's such a tediously repetitive liar, if you can say it like that. You know, ultimately, sin is always saying the same thing. It's like the worst broken record, the worst irritating pop song on the radio that you can't seem to get rid of no matter what station you turn to. Sin is ultimately always telling the exact same lie, and that lie is this. If you want to live, you better shrink back from any hardship. If you really want to live, you better only seek comfort. You better never lean into anything hard. You better never try to endure. And with reference to the body here, as he's talking to the the believers in Hebrews 10, if you ever have any trouble gathering as the church, if the church ever causes you any pain, shrink back. If you want to live, the only way, sin says, the only way is to shrink back. See that in verse 38, he's speaking against it. Don't shrink back. Verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back. Why is he saying it? Because that's what sin tells us to do. But my friends, the truth is the opposite. How do we know? Because we look, how did Jesus win the future? How did Jesus win the future for us? Was it by shrinking back when things got hard? No, it was by enduring. Jesus won the future by choosing the worship of God and the delight of God over all the pleasures of sin. He did not neglect to meet together with His disciples. He did not neglect to live for His people. He did not neglect to come for His people. He pursued and He worshipped God despite the risk. He hated sin more than He hated death. He didn't even shrink back in Gethsemane as the shadow of the cross was looming over Him. But what did He do? He entrusted His soul to His Father. He did not find it fearful to fall into the hands of the living God because he put his heart in the hands of his Father on the cross. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yes, he bore the wrath of God, and yes, that was fearful. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But ultimately, the last words, as recorded in Luke, were into your hands I commit my spirit. He endured, and through that, he won the future for us. And so... If you are here today and you have been caught in the chains of deliberate sin, you're living in cold-blooded sin, I hope you take the warning seriously, but the warning comes with a big promise. There is a way out, and that way out is the same way Jesus won the future for us. 
We are not of those who shrink back, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. As you trust Him for rest, as you put your heart in His hands for rest, you no longer have to fear that you will fall into His hands for wrath. Because as you trust Him, the path that He followed to triumph for you becomes the path that He will triumph in you and through you. In other words, as you trust Jesus, worshiping God together becomes your greatest weapon against sin and against all of its claws and its deliberateness. You're struggling with deliberate sin, struggling with cold-blooded sin. You need to trust in Jesus and you need to commit to worshiping and pursuing God together with His body. You are going to need help to get out of those patterns. And that is exactly what God has given you in the body of Christ. Through all the risk, through all the pain. Number nine. As Jesus did for us, so He will do in us. This is the good news. This is the big promise from this passage. No sin can finally win against souls pursuing Jesus through worship. Will you come along with us as we pursue him? Let us pray. Our God, we do ask that you would give us a fresh horror at sin. Especially, Lord God, give us a horror at the deliberate, cold-blooded sort of sin the kind that we've become too comfortable with, those sins that we coddle rather than chase out of our hearts. Give us, too, a greater vision of the goodness of Jesus who endured to rescue us. And give us a greater appreciation of the great gift that he's given us in the body of Christ to help us pursue him and finally triumph over every sin. We ask that you would grant us these things. In Christ's name, through faith. Amen.